notes are in the outline. Second Timothy chapter 3. I don't know how many of you have um, what I got when I first moved here, those weather alarm clock things, you know what I'm talking about? When I first came here, I was just, well, you understand, when I came to candidate to Martinsdale, that was when the tornado took the top off the Casey's in Norwalk, and so everyone kept assuring me that the tornadoes were uncommon, and yet, um, you know, it's kind of hard to believe that when the one weekend you're here... Um, it, take, it goes through the town up north and takes off the top of the uh, local gas station. And so I bought the, the weather alarm clock, and you tune it in. If you tune it in properly, it'll you know, wake you up and scare you in the middle of the night, um, <laughs> right? <laughs> but the purpose of those clocks is, is to, those radios, is to alert you of incoming danger, alert you of, of things that could harm you, things that could damage your property or, or your life that are near and approaching. And this morning's text does the same thing. Um, Paul is warning Timothy about what is coming in the days ahead. And 2,000 years later, it's, it's an equally appropriate warning for us. This is, this is not one of those passages that generally become life verses or make it on t-shirts. Um, those passages are coming up later in the chapter. In fact, it's this warning about false teaching and warning about the ways of the world that are coming that really set up the response of the second half of the chapter, which is hold fast to God's word. And we get all scriptures inspired of God and those wonderful passages. But this is the backdrop that that is set against. So let's read the first nine verses of chapter three and see what God has for us as we listen to this warning and try to learn from it. 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 9. But understand this, that in the last days there will come difficult times. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janes and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. They will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Let's pray. Lord God, um, we, we know that we live in difficult times, and, and if we read your word, that should not surprise us. And so, Lord... Help us now hear from you. Help us take this warning to heart. Lord, let us, um, let us see the dangers that are there and make what changes we need to make. Purify your bride, your church. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning's message is titled, Difficult Times and Dangerous Men. And the passage really breaks down into two parts. Verses 1 to 5, talking about these dangerous and difficult times. And then specifically zooming in on false teachers Verses 6 to 9, the dangerous men. So we're going to look at it in those two points. And our first point then is difficult times are coming. Difficult times 
are coming. But Paul, there's really only two commands in this whole passage for Timothy. Timothy needs to know something. That's, that's the first command. But understand this. Know this. And it's present active. Be knowing this. Be keeping this in mind. Suggesting there might be a, a tendency to forget this. Here is truth we need to know. Here is truth that God wants us to be keeping in mind, to be aware of. It shouldn't surprise us. Difficult times are coming. And what may look initially like a warning about the culture and about those people out there very quickly becomes a warning about what's going on in here. I mean, it starts off, he says, for men, and then he starts describing what these men will be. And it's easy to think, oh, this is talking about the people outside. But seamlessly, without really any transition, we start talking about those on the inside. And so point A, the thing to be aware of is this. Worldly wisdom will infect the church. It, it always will. It always does. What is being taught out there will creep in through the cracks. Um, there will be people who want to take the wisdom of the world and sell it to Christians. And they'll dress it up with Bible verses. They'll make it sound plausible. It will have the appearance of godliness and wisdom. Worldly wisdom will infect the church. It always will. And what we get following here is a list of 18 characteristics of what these men will be like. And as you try to look at a list that's 18 long, it can be kind of daunting. And even if we had an hour sermon, we could only spend probably two or three minutes on each one. But when you look at the list, it's capped by words about love. It's capped by words about love. You see that at the beginning. They're lovers, lovers of self, lovers of money. Down at verse, the end of verse 4, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I think what is loved by these men, what is loved by the culture, is a good place to start, this capping. And so what characterizes this, this wisdom of the world, this spirit of the age that will infect the church, is a love of self, money, and pleasure. Love of self, money, and pleasure. And so as, as I talk about this, I want, I'll let you gauge um, how much these things have already crept into the church. There's a warning that it's coming, and yet again, by the time we get to this into this passage, it's clear even in Paul's day, in part, it has arrived. He's describing people who are doing things, not people who will do things. And so 2,000 years later, I would suggest to you it has arrived as well, as well as it is coming. So let's just start with, with, with looking at this. Lovers of self. Lovers of self. Men will be lovers of self. And you don't have to look very far in a Christian bookstore to see scads of books selling you that your greatest need, um, the thing that is most hampering your spiritual growth, is that you don't love yourself enough. Um, stop and think about it. You, you know I'm right. You don't love yourself enough, and you don't have enough self-value. Um, you need to discover love in a mirror, and that's what's holding you back. And the way it gets sold is, is really bizarre. They take the, the second greatest commandment and the first greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your might, with all your soul. The second is like unto this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you see that it gets smuggled in there. You can't love your neighbor until you love yourself. That's how it's sold. And so what's stopping you from loving your neighbor and what's stopping you from loving God? And you would be surprised at otherwise godly, wise authors saying this. And it came in from secular psychology. It came in from Jung and the third wave movement and, and positive self-image. And that gets dressed up with Bible verses and it shows up in the church. 
The Bible assumes we love ourselves very much. You want a good test of how much you love yourself? Um, here's, here's some simple questions. Do you take the near parking space at the, at the mall? Or do you think, man, those people are more important than me and I'm, I'm, just, I'm just nobody, so I don't deserve the good space? Do you take the big slice of pizza? You know, we all love ourselves plenty. There may be things about ourselves that disappoint ourselves, but we, we take care of ourselves, don't we? And in the parable of the Good Samaritan, um, the way that the love for neighbors expressed wasn't by speaking to the sick man, the hurt man, how valuable he was. It was doing practical things, putting him on his donkey, tending his wounds, taking him to a doctor. There's not one of us who, if we're cold and have clothes, don't put on a coat. We love ourselves. Augustine, writing about this hundreds of years ago in the City of God, wrote this. There are two cities that have been founded on two loves. The earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly, by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glorifies itself. The latter, the Lord. And, and, they're, and they're set in contrast to each other, by the way. Notice that. There's, they'll be lovers of self. They'll be lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, rather than, so here's in opposition, and either or, lovers of God. So quite contrary to the teaching that you can't love God to love yourself, this text would suggest you can't love God if you're a lover of self. See, I told you, this stuff, it, it creeps in. It's subtle. Lovers of self. Okay, let's move on to the next one. Lovers of money. And America is the prime manufacturer and exporter of the prosperity gospel. Right? You know that. We, we, we're the ones who are shipping out to Africa and the poorest countries in the world. And what the prosperity gospel says is that what you get in coming to Jesus Christ is money and health and prosperity. And if you don't have those things, it's because you don't have enough faith. God's promised you healing and he's promised you money. Just recently, a man died because he refused to receive medical treatment because he was convinced if he had enough faith, he would survive the snake bite. You read about that, right? So it's here. And there's always this notion that if I, can, if I can just do the right stuff, if I can just please God, then he'll give me what I want. The problem is when we do that, according to James, when we ask for things to spend it on our pleasures, we treat God like a cosmic vending machine. And we're not really worshiping God when we do that. We're worshiping money. If God is the means to what I want, the end is money and prosperity, well, what's my God? So James says, you adulterous people, don't you realize that friendship of the world is enmity with God? And yet there will always be a market for Christians and leaders and book writers who say you can have your cake and eat it too. You can have a crown without a cross. You can have glory without the road to Golgotha. And there's always going to be people who can tell you you can have your best life now, that God wants you to have that new car, he wants you to get that new job, and, and it, it always will just get repackaged. But America, our country, is, is the prime hub of the prosperity movement, which then has now its tentacles worldwide. Finally, the lovers of self, the lovers of money, lovers of pleasure. Lovers of pleasure. And again, this is the complete opposite focus of what the New Testament is calling us to. The New Testament's calling us. Jesus says, whoever will not pick up his cross, follow me and deny himself, cannot be my disciple, and yet... Here, 
this, this thing that's going to creep in, what's going to characterize men. They're going to love pleasure. They're not going to love self-denial. They're going to love self. They're going to love money. They're going to love pleasure. There's names for these. The love of self is called narcissism. The, the love of money is materialism. The love of pleasure is hedonism. And they very much describe our age. And consequently, they begin to infect and taint the church. And we just do nice, safe things, and we, we just, you know, take care of ourselves, and, and we don't care about the world, and, and that's the danger that is facing us. These are the, the characteristics of what's coming, and if you look around, it's here. It's here. It's in America. It's in the world. And if we're not careful, if we're not keeping our eyes open, it will creep into Christ's church. Secondly, it's characterized by self-conceit, self-confidence, and self-promoting. Self-conceited, self-confident, self-promoting. Just look at the list. They're proud. They're arrogant. The word the the ESV translates abusive is defaming. They're treacherous. They're reckless. They're swollen with conceit. It's all about self. It's all about ego. And they're opposed to what is good. Now, this isn't as obvious in in the English translation, but the middle... Two, four, six, nine characteristics are all positive virtues with an alpha primitive in front. You know how the alpha primitive works. There's moral and there's amoral. There's symmetrical and there's asymmetrical. You put that alpha in front and it negates it, right? Um, so here, and I'll sort of put it in the negative phrase, it's all these nots. They're parent not obeyers. They're not grateful. They're not holy. They're not feeling. They're not reconcilable. They're not controlled. They're not tamed. They're not loving good. Just a big long list of positive virtues with, with negatives in front. And again, you go through this and, and it's creeping in. You know, we, we live in a culture where more and more the wisdom of the world, and I saw it spoken to me by an animated crab, is that children have got to be free to live their own lives, right? Oh, you know what I'm talking about now. I'm getting close to home. An animated crab said children have got, that's, that's the moral, Rebel against your parents and you'll be blessed. You know, run off with the boy who snuck in that you just met. Because even though he's a scoundrel, your love will change him. It'll be okay. And this is all creeping into the church. You know, it's, it's interesting that nowadays it is absolutely assumed, just assumed, that teenage children will rebel. Um, it's just it's a non-negotiable. Of course they're going to. This is a world, post-World War II worldview. You jump behind World War II, that is not the assumption. But in a culture that, that celebrates and promotes this sort of, you've got to do your own thing, you've got to become your own person, um, this has become the new norm. It, it creeps in. They don't obey their parents. They're not grateful. They're not holy. They're heartless. They're not feeling. Unappeasable, they're not reconcilable. They're slanderers. Without self-control. Brutal, really, not tamed. A wild beast. They just follow their heart. They just go with their instinct. They just do what feels right. Not loving good. Treacherous. Reckless. Swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And I don't think this is an exhaustive list. But I think we get an idea of what's out there. And, and you know it's out there. And, and if, you, if you're willing to look, it's, it creeps into the church. And Paul is telling Timothy that he needs to be aware of this. He needs to be recognizing this, keeping his eyes open. There's really only two commands. We've looked at the first one, which is to 
Be knowing this. Be aware of this. Understand this. That this this love of self, this love of money and pleasure, self-conceited, self-confident, self-promoting attitude and an opposition to what is good will creep in. And we know it's in the church because point B, its adherence may appear godly. Look at verse 5. Having the appearance of godliness. So what started out in in verse 2 for people is now in the church. And, And literally it says having an exterior manifestation of godliness on the outside looking godly. To say it the way Jesus said it, the outside of their cup may be clean. Matthew 23, verses 25 to 28, and I'm sure you know what I'm talking about here. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. By the way, the word hypocrite was originally a term for an actor in a a Greek play. They had a mask, and so hypocrite, one who speaks from under a mask. You appear to be one thing. You have the happy face on. You have the sad face on. Underneath, there's something else. That's the basic concept of a hypocrite. Someone who's putting on the impression of one thing when underneath it's something else. So Jesus calls them hypocrites because you, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside, they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Paul says they have the appearance of godliness. You know, the people selling this stuff are going to look attractive. They're going to look nice. They're going to have nice white smiles. I said earlier, a few weeks ago, it'd be nice if these people all had curly mustaches and wore the top hats and had a maniacal laugh. They'd be easy to spot, right? You just sort of, <laughs> okay, that's one of them. You know? and, and, but that's not what God has given us. What God has told us is these are the things they're going to be believing. These are the things they're going to be selling. These are the, the hard attitudes they're going to be embracing. Respect to Jesus telling us that we'll know them by their fruit. The outside of the cup may be clean, but there is no power to their walk. There is no power to their walk. They have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. That's, that's really the test. Paul says the kingdom of God isn't in eating and drinking, but in power, the Holy Spirit. And then the concept here of power isn't working miracles. It's the power to put off these things he's just listed. It's the power to be changed and transformed. See, all the world can offer in its self-help programs is exterior change, or what is called behavior modification. And the way behavior modification works is you just sort of figure out what it takes to motivate someone to change the external actions and so change occurs. And so people can quit smoking and people can quit drinking and people can do some external change. And Jesus says that's, that's pointless. What, what needs to change is the heart. What needs to change is the Holy Spirit needs to cleanse our heart. God needs to change our heart. And only after that change has happened can then real change happen. It's, otherwise, it's like going to my apple tree, which this last year, for whatever reason, I think it's um, because it's the eggs that get laid by the wasps or whatever, but there's a bunch of moths and a bunch of worms in the apples, and you can imagine the foolishness if I were to get up there on a ladder 
with some brand new apples that I bought at um, Hy-Vee and started, you know, staple gunning them onto the tree. And for a couple days, my tree might look really nice. You might come and go, wow, you're an amazing gardener, Jeremy. What did you do? But you come over a couple days later, and what's going to happen? What's going to happen to those apples that I stapled onto the tree? They're going to rot. Why is that? Because they didn't come from the tree. The tree didn't authentically produce them. And what's going to happen next year? They're just going to grow back, right? Just, the old bad apples are just going to grow back. Well, that's the problem with trying to change apart from the Spirit. The best you can offer is some sort of external mold, coping mechanism. And, and what the, the gospel puts forward is that we can be transformed. We, we saw last week about God will take hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh. God will put a new spirit within us. We can be transformed. He says in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. The second command of this whole passage, the only other command to Timothy, is to avoid such people. Avoid such people. And this gets back to this whole notion of division. Remember I said this, the book really has two major portions. The first, chapter 1, 3, going through 2, 13, is an extended exhortation to Timothy to be bold, to be courageous, to, to walk in the power of the Spirit, to, to be willing to suffer, to not be ashamed. And then starting in 2.14, it shifts to Timothy's teaching and correction ministry in the face of the false teaching and the false teachers in the church. And that really will go all the way through chapter 4, verse 8, where, Timothy, where Paul will begin his final closing comments. And so we're right dab in the middle of that. Timothy has just been instructed to correct some people. And, and Paul, I think, here in chapter 3 is showing him what they're going to need correction of, why that's going to be so necessary, because the world's going to go this way, and it's going to start creeping into the church. And ultimately, those who won't listen, avoid them. Avoid them. This is not an uncommon exhortation from Paul. Listen to Romans 16, 17. I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles. Contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught, avoid them. 1 Timothy 6.20, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. And Titus 3.9, not 3.19, there is no 3.19, 3.9, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Really, all that this is to inform Timothy and to inform us of what's going on. There's really two applications. Don't forget it. Keep it in mind. And where you see this and where people are unteachable, avoid them. Stay away from it. Resist the urge to get dragged in. So, so difficult times are coming. And we see in many respects they're here. Now we're going to look at verses 6 to 9. The dangerous men are here. And what Paul does is going from this broad sort of worldview that that characterizes what's coming, he now begins to speak about the actual people pushing and selling this. Verse 6, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Dangerous men are here. They were here in Paul's day and they're here now. And they're coming, but they're here. And so we first, in verses 6 or 7, are going to look at their victims. Who do they prey upon? Who are their victims? 
And, and Paul uses a, a discouraging term here, um, which, which can be challenging. He's not, he's not saying that all women are weak. Um, he's not saying that at all. But he is saying that, that the special target of these teachers are weak women. And, and I think if, you're, if we're honest and we deal with broad brush strokes, that's, that's true today. Who, who, do the, who, who, do the, who watched the televangelists and the, the TV show Oprah's more, more often, the men or the women? Generally, it's, it's these women, not, not all women, but in Paul's day especially, where women weren't in the workforce, there were plenty of women who were home, and the potential was for idleness. The, the weak women, by the way, really means idle and foolish. It's literally small women. And so these idle and foolish women, and Paul's talked about that before back in, in 1 Timothy 2, there's a danger for them to be deceived. Um, the serpent went after Eve, remember. Again, I'm, I'm not saying that, that, that women are the ones susceptible to false teaching. Paul is sort of painting one picture, sort of a, a stereotype that he assumes Timothy is familiar with. This is the type of person they go after. Idle and foolish. Burdened by sins, controlled by their passions. And this really is the, the great tragedy of the picture. These are people who are feeling the weight of sin. They're feeling the burden of their sin. They, they, they know they need some help. They know something's wrong. And, and when I think about the people who are you know, devotees of Oprah and, and those types of things on TV or following those, those um, prosperity teachers, um, it's often that. They know something's wrong. They wouldn't be watching it if they didn't want help. They wouldn't be watching it if they didn't want some Help fix me. And, and rather than giving them the gospel of Jesus Christ, rather than calling them to turn to the Lord and to trust him and be forgiven and restored, these, these people who are burdened by their sins, who are led about by their passions, are, are brought to something else. Um, and consequently, they're always learning, but never learning. And that's really the sad thing. I mean, these people, on the one hand, are faithful students, hanging on the words of these people. Yet Paul says, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. This is, of course, what links this passage with what we looked at last week. Remember last week we talked about the, the, the necessity at times of correcting people, the necessity of bringing kind, gentle, clear correction. And what, why was that that we did that? Verse 26 of chapter 2, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Verse 5, 25. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So that's the goal, a knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, 4 says, God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And here are these people, they're burdened with sins. It's a terrible picture, burdened with sins. Slaves to their own desires and appetites. They're always learning, man. They're hanging on every word. They're flipping the channels. They're, they're taking this in. They're meeting with these people. They're reading their books. And they're never arriving at a knowledge of the truth. And, and so these, these, these people are doing damage in the church. They're doing damage to weak, foolish, sin-burdened people. And it's a tragedy. And Paul wants... Timothy to be aware of it. He wants Timothy to keep it in mind. And, and he wants us to as well. So we've seen their victims in verses 6 to 7. Now we're going to look at their example. Their example. Because Paul is now going to compare them 
to Janes and Jambres, who do not appear in your Bible. This, is, this, was, this sort of threw me for a loop when I first came upon this. Um, Janes and Jambres are nowhere in Scripture. Uh, rabbinic tradition and, and, and basically what amount to Aramaic translations of the Old Testament show that there's an old tradition tracking back that has given those as the names of, of the sorcerers who Pharaoh had. So the blank there is Jonas and Jambres likely is referring to the magicians in Exodus 7. There's another possibility because literally what their names mean is he who seduces and he who makes rebellion. And so it's possible it's really not naming individuals as much as the spirit at work, the type of persons who are in Pharaoh's court. But the picture, of course, is this. God has sent a deliverer. He sent a um, redeemer, someone to take his people and free them. And, and who does he meet in Pharaoh's court? But other would-be religious people working false miracles. Their stick, their, they made a snake. Of course, Moses' snake ate their snake. But they opposed the truth. This is the second time Paul's used this, a similar example. You remember earlier, he talked about Korah's rebellion and those who withstood Moses there. And what he's saying is it's just been the nature of things due to the fact that there is a spiritual war, due to the fact that there is a real enemy, that the truth will be opposed. The truth will be opposed. In one sense, what these men are doing in the church, what the people today are doing, these teachers are doing, is no different than what was done thousands of years ago. And until the Lord returns, it will continue. And they may even be able to do impressive feats. But we're going to recognize them by their fruit. We're going to recognize them by the doctrine they teach and, and the values they promote. Because at heart, they oppose the truth. And they're corrupted in mind. And they're disqualified from the faith. First Timothy 6, 3-5, it says something similar. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness... Or you could say if they teach you to love yourself, love pleasure, love money. If anyone does that, he is puffed up with conceit, understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Paul is not a big fan of the prosperity gospel. If you've somehow found some way to link godliness and material gain, then 1 Timothy 6, 3 to 5 would apply to you. And I don't think you want that passage to apply to you. Um, there's no, Paul has a very clear view of what he thinks of those who want to try to combine cash and the faith. They know nothing. Deprived of mind, disqualified from the faith. Finally, you get some encouraging report. You might be discouraged at this point. If this is a timeless attack, if they just keep attacking, there's good news. We're going to see their outcome in verse 9. We're going to see their outcome. First, they will not make much progress. Verse 9, they will not get very far. And so, on the one hand, there's a balance here. On the one hand, this is a warning God wants us to keep in mind. This is this is something that we could forget about, something we could stop paying attention to, stop being discerning about. On the other hand, we could sort of throw up our hands in the air and, and, and be worried. I mean, is this going to destroy the church? No, no, it's not going to destroy the church. You think of Jesus' um, promise 
After Peter made his great confession in Matthew 16, 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know, and so there's two dangers. On the one hand, we can ignore this and let it creep in and let it take people captive. On the other hand, you can sort of overreact to false teaching and heresy. And it always falls by the wayside. And I can tell you just in the, the 15 years or so that I've been a Christian, the, what the big dangers to the church were. And they're gone now. Open theism, gone. The emergent church, still in its last death throes, but it's mostly gone. Um, you know, Rob Bell telling the church that it had to change or perish and disappear and become irrelevant. I, I think the shoe is rather on the other foot at this point. Uh, the church is still going strong. They will not make much progress. And ultimately, finally, their error will become evident to all. The Lord won't be mocked. And so these people may for a while be able to sell it. They may be able for a while to deceive people. But eventually the truth will come out. Eventually the tree will bear its fruit. It will be seen for what it is. And so we can take comfort. The Lord will not let false teachers destroy his church. And one of the ways he won't let them do it is by giving people like Timothy and us warnings like this so that we can beware and be aware. But the church won't fall. The church will be here when Christ returns. She will persevere. Um, the, the wolves may ravage around the fringe, but she will stand. And we take great comfort and courage in that. So there's a danger, and there's something we need to be aware of. And there are people that we may need to avoid. But take courage and hope in, in knowing that Christ will defend his church. Christ will protect his church. Christ will guard his church. He's jealous for his bride. And he may even use people like you and me to help purify and cleanse her. And we're going to move to a time of communion now. I'd like to call the ushers forward. And before we do, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11. Now, God willing, we've been going periodically, we've been doing standalone messages dealing with different doctrinal issues, either one on baptism, one on spirit baptism. But God willing, in the uh, second week of April, you'll hear a message um, on understanding what communion in the Lord's table is. But while we, we have a minute or two, I just want to read a passage in 1 Corinthians 11. I need to look at verse 27. You know, I was, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, and, and there are some churches who, quote-unquote, guard the table. And in churches that do that, um, basically, they, they determine who will and who won't take the Lord's table. And there's, there's something to that. I, I don't fully buy it, but... But it's an attempt to say, look, you know, we don't want, this isn't for unbelievers. But I want you to listen to this warning, because I think the Lord himself guards the table. Verse 27, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and then eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we have judged ourselves, truly we would not be judged. 
So before we take communion, I just want to take a moment for us to examine ourselves. Is our heart right? Is there something you need to deal with the Lord? This, this table, anyone, anyone who knows the Lord is welcome to come. If, if you don't even know the Lord now, now could be a time where you could turn to him in faith, where you could trust in Jesus, where you could look to him to be your savior and your salvation. So let's just all take a minute and examine our hearts, get right with the Lord, and then let us celebrate his table.